This morning, if you'll turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 3, we're going to wrap this chapter up, and with it, sort of uh, a summary of Paul's teaching, explanation of the doctrine of justification by faith. I hope that it's become more than just a doctrine to you. I hope it's become the treasure of your heart that Jesus has taken your penalty and given you his righteousness so that you can have a relationship with him. Paul says in Romans 3.27, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? Of works? No, but by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since indeed God, who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, is one. Do we then nullify the law through faith? May it never be, on the contrary, we establish the law. Now, if you've been following the Apostle Paul's reasoning up until this point, as he has been explaining the, the opening salvo of all that is redemption, he has been talking to us about how it is that we are made to stand before God as if we had never sinned. How is it that we are cleansed? How are we uh, experiencing the forgiveness of sin, the cleansing from sin? You know, it's one thing to be forgiven and still have the, the mess there. But it's another thing to be cleansed and to, to be washed, the scripture says, whiter than snow. And to be made to stand in God's presence just as if I'd never sinned. If you need a way to remember justified, there it is. Just as if I'd never sinned at all. How does this happen? And Paul says, in a most amazing way, God has done this work through Jesus Christ so that he has taken my penalty. He has paid for my sin, and he has made possible that God can release me from the obligation, the debt that I had, because the soul that sins, it will die. But Jesus Christ has made it possible for me to be released from that debt because he died for me. He who knew no sin was made sin for me, that I might become the righteousness of God in him. And Paul says we've done nothing to deserve this. We've done nothing to earn it. Well, there's nothing we can contribute to it. Indeed, it's an insult to God if we try to add to what Jesus has already done on the cross. How can you compare with that? How can you add anything to what Jesus has done and said, it is finished, the debt is paid, it's over, there's nothing we can add. Paul is so clear about this that he wants us to understand that we have contributed nothing to our justification. All that has been asked of us is that we believe and receive the gift that Jesus Christ has made available. This is an amazing thing. In fact, it's so amazing, Paul will come back to it time and again throughout Romans usually in the form of a question, to kind of remind us of the remarkable truth of this and of its implications. It truly is amazing that God should, should uh, so thoroughly 
<coughs> cleanse us from all sin and put us in a position of perfectly right standing with him on the basis of faith alone. Now when I say that, I, I want to remind you that we are not talking about easy believism. Have you heard that term before, easy believism? It means that all that is necessary to receive the gift that Jesus is offering is to make an intellectual commitment. I believe Jesus died for me. That is not what the Scripture talks about. In fact, there's nothing in the Scripture that suggests that we can be justified simply by acknowledging the truth of Jesus' death on the cross in my place. The Bible says in that regard, James puts it this way, the demons believe and they tremble. They're not converted, they're not transformed, it doesn't impact their behavior, but they give intellectual consent to what they know to be a fact of history. Jesus died on the cross for the sins of men and women. And it doesn't do them any good to acknowledge the truth of that. The scripture says that belief in this sense is not merely an intellectual commitment, but it is a commitment of the whole being to the truth that has been revealed to us. But Paul is quickly to say, is quick to say, this belief, this faith is not a work. It's not something we ourselves have conjured up. In fact, if you study the scriptures carefully, I think you'll discover that <coughs> even faith is a gift. We believe and God provides faith to, to embrace that belief and to move forward with Him. How many of you ever, have ever heard the words monergism and synergism? <laughs> One, two, <laughs> three, okay. Um, well, those are interesting words. Um, you know what... Uh, what defines a profession in the classical sense is, among other things, a unique vocabulary. And uh, there used to only be three professions that were handed down to us from the Middle Ages. Theology was considered the queen of sciences, and uh, then uh, law and medicine. And those were the only three professions. And part of what made them a profession was that they had a unique language within their structure so that colleagues could talk to one another in very precise terms. Well, now we have everybody's a professional. Bug killers are professionals, lawn cutters are professionals, and uh, everybody's a professional, so that's kind of gotten watered down a bit. But uh, along with that, uh, we've kind of lost that vocabulary. So don't worry about monergism or synergism. That's just how theologians talk to each other, okay? But let me tell you about them because there's some important concepts. Whether you know the terms or not is immaterial, but the concepts are kind of important, and I want to give you a handle on that. I was reading, again, about monergism on the Internet this, this week, and basically this is what monergism is. Mono meaning one, that God is the only one who acts in the redemptive process, in other words, you're walking along the street one day, and all of a sudden, bam, God zaps you. The Holy Spirit causes you to be born again. You fall to your knees, and suddenly your eyes are open, and you say, God, I believe. And you believe because God converted you already, and you had nothing to do with that. And furthermore, now you're going to be a Christian because God has predetermined that you're going to be a Christian, and you have nothing to say about that either. This is all the work of God, and it requires nothing on your part. It just happens to you, and that's why you're born again. In fact, you get born again before you even know to repent and believe. Those are fruits of the new birth that come by the Holy Spirit. That's basically monergism. God does everything, you do zero. Synergism says there is a participation between the divine and the human. That God does something and you respond to that something. Just for the record, I happen to be a synergist, only because I think the Bible teaches that, not because I think it's a better word or, you know, that's something I came up with, but I think the scripture teaches that. 
And this is what I think the Scripture teaches. That when the gospel message is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit is present. And as the gospel is preached, He opens the eyes of hearers. Maybe not everyone in the room at the same time. But the Holy Spirit accompanies the proclamation of the gospel, opens the eyes of the unbeliever, brings conviction of sin, reveals Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice on the cross, makes us aware of our need, and offers us the opportunity to respond to the invitation to come to God. And if we simply reach feebly forward and say, yes, then He provides the encouragement of faith that enables us to take that step and say yes to God. I want to follow you. I want to be born again. I want to, I, I want to be cleansed and forgiven. And friends, all that God asks of us when that, that unveiling, that conviction, that revelation is made known is that we say, I want it. I want this. And in that saying, God provides the faith and the energy and the dynamic to respond to Him. And from that moment forward, the Holy Spirit enters our life and begins to motivate us from within by His power. And Paul says, this is not a work. If, if you have eyes to see it all, you know that you did not do anything to earn or merit your salvation. But God came to you bearing a gift. And He opened your eyes to see it. And He gave you the grace to comprehend. And He brought the conviction of sin. And He gave the power to believe. All we ask is that you respond. Paul says this is a law of faith, but it is not works. And no one who comes to Jesus this way has the right to boast. In fact, he goes on to say that this justification by faith establishes and affirms the law. Now, people are very concerned about the law. They want to know what to do with it. What does it mean in our lives? How does it apply to us? Is God overlooking it? And if you followed the message last week, what we learned is God does not overlook the law in this redemptive process, in this salvation. But rather the requirements of the law are fully met. The soul that sins will die. Jesus died. He died for me, the one who knew no sin, and enabled me to then receive his substitutionary death for my sins. And then in receiving that made it possible for me to be clothed with his righteousness. And Paul says this in no way nullifies or diminishes the law, but it affirms it. God will not compromise. The law cannot be bent or violated or changed. The law stands as a testament to, to God's immutability, His inability to change. He is who He is. He will not compromise His holiness. But Jesus has fully satisfied the requirement. And when we believe by faith, we affirm the truthfulness of the law. This is an amazing thing. God still holds his hatred for sin. It is still as horrible as it ever was, but he makes it possible to love us because there is a cleansing and, 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 a, and a redeeming potential in the blood of Jesus that gives us right standing with God. You know, if we get a hold of this salvation by grace, it, it just justification by faith, if we get a hold of this, really get our hands around it, really 
understand this with our spiritual eyes. We should be the most humble and gracious people on the planet. I mean, that's what the effect it should have on our lives. We should be utterly astounded that God loves us so much and we've done nothing to deserve the death of Jesus, but that God has freely given His Son to pay the price. Paul says, where is boasting in this? But you know, spiritual pride is, one of, is a big problem that, that believers have. It's amazing that we can be given so much in exchange for so little and come away thinking we've done something so good. I think spiritual pride has a problem among believers because pride has a problem among people. And it's only natural that when you become a spiritual person, you become spiritually proud in the carnal, in the carnal person. Pride is the, the stream from which all other sin flows. Pride is the bottom line. The self-centered focus is the essence of sinfulness. And when we come to Christ, I suppose that in the flesh, it's natural to think, I had something to do with this. Look at me, I'm a believer. Look what I've done. I'm a Christian. I go to church. I'm a good person. Friends, if, if you are thinking that way, you have not seen grace the way Paul has presented it. Because he describes us in those first few chapters of Romans as being at the bottom of the barrel. We are the, the dregs of humanity. We are noxious in the eyes of God. We are filled with sin from morning to night and even in our sleep, our thoughts and dreams. We are sinful to the core. And God has come along by His grace and given us the opportunity to be released from that through Jesus Christ. And it should cause us to go, wow, this is incredible. Have you ever been in a place of great need? I mean, some kind of physical need, financial need, personal need. You've been in a place of great need. And someone out of the blue, when you never expected it, came to you and met that need. They provided something for you that you needed. And it bailed you out. I mean, it met you. How does that make you feel? I mean, do you feel like you should get credit for, for that in some way? You know, on the human level, we, we don't have a problem recognizing the humbling reality. I, I mean, this is not just like getting a Christmas gift. I mean, we give each other gifts at Christmas, and we try to pick out, if, if, if you're thoughtful about it, you try to pick out something you think the other person would like and appreciate. And it frequently is not associated with a need. It's just a time of year to say thank you or whatever. And But... When you are in desperate straits and someone meets you and provides for you, that's humbling. That that it just is like wow. I didn't I didn't deserve that. I didn't even know it was coming. And and, and you're just kind of full of gratitude that you've been met in such a marvelous way. That's the impact that, that justification should have on us. Wow, God has really met me. God has come to my rescue. God has completely cleansed me. And, and I've done nothing to deserve this. It should fill us with humility and gratitude and love for Him. We should have hearts full of joy. Now, when I say that, I, I'm, I'm looking at some very somber people. 
<laughs> and I probably look very somber myself. I remember one time I was really fired up in a sermon, and this uh, child asked his parent, or her parent, I can't remember if it was a little boy or a girl, girl but asked the parent on the way out the door, Mommy, is he mad with us? <laughs> I thought, dear God, that is not what I'm trying to communicate. But I guess sometimes when I get fired up, that's the way it comes out, you know. And, and, uh, and some of you look a little somber right now, you know. And when I talk about joy... I'm not talking about this giddy, airheaded kind of feeling where you go around with this plastic smile on your face and life is all hunky-dory and there aren't any problems and you know everything's good and you know and you just couldn't be more blissful. I thought about this point in my sermon outline a lot last night. I thought about it at one o'clock and again at two o'clock and again at three o'clock. Power finally came back on, and again at 4 o'clock, and I said, God, how am I going to preach about this joy when right now (laughs) all I want to do is just go to sleep? And I was kind of feeling that way, and I understand when I say that, that that there's practical realities of life that aren't fun. But I'm talking about something that goes beyond that. I'm talking about something that goes deeper than that. It's not about the circumstances. It's not about having some giddy, airheaded feeling. It's about something that's going on deep inside here that is a fountain of gratitude and joy that wells up to God and says, God, I am so grateful that I have a relationship with you. I am so thankful that my sins are cleansed. I am so appreciative that I have eternal life, that I'm going to heaven. Listen, this is the joy that all the martyrs carried with them to their death. This is the joy that allows believers around the world to suffer uh, incredible uh, kinds of oppression and persecution and remain faithful to Jesus Christ because they have deeply grasped the prize that they have in Him. And they are not willing to give it up or turn their back on that gift of grace for anything in the world. It fills them with joy, with gratitude, with with a humility that says, Jesus, you have given so much to me, I will die for you. I love you so much. I would never trade you for anything. I would never deny you. I love you. You have changed my life so completely. This was the kind of effect that this had on Paul's life. You know why Paul did all the things he did? Yes, I know he was called. I know that God met him on the road to Damascus. I know he had this uh, blinding and then eye-opening experience. And all of those things are true of him. But when Paul looks back on his life and gives his testimony about what drove him as, a, as an apostle and as a preacher and a proclaimer of the gospel message, do you know what he said? The love of Christ compels me. I am constrained by the love of God. I can't do anything else. I am driven by the passion that I have for Jesus. And he says, my whole religious life to that moment is a pile of rubbish. My only desire is to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and to be conformed to the image of His death. That's my goal. I want to know Jesus. And my love for Him and what He's done for me is what fuels the fire of my life. I want my life to be poured out as a drink offering. I want to be given and spent, exhausted in in the service of the King I love him so much, I am compelled to proclaim the message. That was what drove him. It was not just a call, as important as that is. It was not some mission of the church. It was not some program. It was the love of God motivating his life. Because... He had been given so much. He said, I am the chief of sinners, and God has forgiven me. 
Wow. Can't do anything else. I want to talk to you just a little bit, kind of personal application here. Next week, by the way, we're going to get into Abraham's life. And <coughs> we don't have a prep guide for that because this is how long it was. So I'll just read you the prep guide for Abraham, okay? Next week, we're going to look at all of chapter 4, one sermon on chapter 4. Read the life of Abraham in Genesis 11:27 to 25:11. In other words, about 13 chapters in the middle of Genesis, starting with the end of chapter 11, going to chapter 25. That's the story of the life of Abraham in the Old Testament. Note the times when Abraham had direct encounters with God. And in what ways does Abraham demonstrate that he is a man who believes God? Paul's going to give us a great testimony from the life of Abraham that he is the father of all the faithful, the father of believers. And we're going to study that together next week. If you start today and read two chapters a day, by next Sunday you'll be all ready. You'll be set to go in the life of Abraham. It's about two a day, and you'll, you'll have it all down. And we're going to go there and, and see how Abraham demonstrated this life. But I want to talk to you just for a few moments this morning about being a missional people. Now, how many of you have heard the word missional before? That is not a theological term. <laughs> it's not one of those uh, theologian terms from the Middle Ages. But missional is a coined phrase in the last few years, it's basically an adverb, as I understand the way it's used, because it does not simply talk about um, who we are, but what we do. It describes our activity and our behavior. That we are a people who act and are driven by a mission. We're missional. We're a people who are driven by a mission. And that mission is to share this incredibly good news about the blessing that we have in Jesus Christ of forgiveness, of cleansing. You know, some people have said that sharing Christ is, is equivalent to one beggar telling another where they found bread. We have discovered by grace an amazing thing. God loves sinners. And he wants them to come home to him. And we have discovered that firsthand. We found out what that is like. And now we have this incredibly wonderful gift. And we need to go tell others about it. To share that incredible message. We need to be missional people. People who are driven by a passion. I've been reading a book by um, John Shaw on nature photography. And um, he's an interesting guy to read because as you read his books, you gather that he is an incredibly good photographer as, as a technically skilled person. He, he, you can just tell he knows most of his work through his life. He was born in 1944. Most of his work was, is done in film. In, in slide film, and you can just tell he knows film, you know, like a musician knows music or an artist knows their paints. He really knows his medium. He understands it, and, and that comes out. But he has this to say about nature photography. He says the most important thing about good nature photography is that, first of all, you have to be a naturalist. In other words, you have to be a lover of nature and a student of biology zoology and ecology. That, that has to be your passion. And he says the thing that will separate a good nature photographer from a bad nature photographer is, and, and I'm paraphrasing him here, but this is, this is the essence of what he means, he says some people go out to take pictures that they think will sell. That's their goal. I want to capture, I want to capture that $20,000 frame and sell it. And he says they're all about the technique and all about finding the money maker. And he says 
they produce work that has no passion. It's technically good, it may be, you know, interesting, but it's flat emotionally. He says, if you want to be a good nature photographer, first of all, be excited about nature. Be amazed at the wonder. Be fascinated by the intricacies. Be dazzled by the color. And then try to capture what your heart sees on the film. And he said, then when you get that print, it'll be full of soul and passion. It'll call people to it. You look at his photography, and it's really pretty amazing. He talks in there about setting up at ground level. I think this was in a zoo. <laughs> he talked about setting up at ground level with a cougar so that his camera lens was pointed at the eyes of the cougar and waiting until the cougar began to turn toward him and then firing his motor drive so that he could catch a, a, a series of quick exposures. And sure enough, you look at that photo that he got that he chose to keep and there's this cougar looking right in your eyes, you know, and you see this animal so much alive. And, and he, that's what he was after. That's what he wanted, was the passion of the encounter of the man with the animal. And the film was there to record the moment. Why am I telling you a story about John Shaw? Because he tells us something about the way he goes at his life. Passion fuels the rest of his behavior. And, and he sees the world a certain way and looks for how he can capture what's in his heart when he looks at nature. And friends, that's the way we should be as believers with regard to this marvelous message of grace. I was invited over last night to have dinner with some people I'd never met before. And um, we sat around a table and I got to meet new people and make new friends. And in the course of that, uh, there was something that was on my heart as we had conversation. And I prayed for the people around the table that they might come to know Jesus. Now, I didn't have a chance to talk to anybody last night about Jesus. But it was on my heart. I was praying for them and for their lives. And I was asking God to, to, to make a difference here. I was wondering what the future might hold. Would there be other encounters? Would there be other opportunities? Last night was simply building rapport, making a friendship. But there was in my heart a passion that they come to know Jesus Christ. And friends, what I'm saying to you is there should be such an overwhelming sense of the grace of God in our lives that it drives us every moment. <clears throat> you had a question in your discussion guide last week that said... Um, in what way do you feel something like this? I'm paraphrasing my own question now. In, in what way do you feel that God loves you? Now the question before it says, why do you think God loves human beings? And the answer to that is a theological question, is a theological response. It's, well, God loves human beings because they're created in his image. They have an everlasting soul, and, 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 and he has a vested interest in his image in man. Okay, so that's, that's the theology answer. But in the next question, what I wanted to hear was, but why does he love you personally? How many of you discuss that question in your groups? It's okay to raise your hand. Okay. Did, did that generate some energy around that question? <laughs> did you find that one to be interesting? Challenging? Some, some people want to avoid those kinds of questions. They're too intensely personal. And others, you know, of us don't know what to say. But what I was driving at in that is, what is it in you that draws God to you? He loves you. You're made in his image. 
But what is it about you that draws him to you? Or draws, yeah, draws him to you. What does he love about you? Let me put the question a different way. How many babies are born saved? Now, I'm not talking about whether or not infants go to heaven when they die. That's a whole other question. Let's just leave that one alone for today. What I'm asking is, how many babies are born saved? None. Answer, everybody agrees, zero is the answer. Okay. How many babies are skillfully wrought and fashioned and knitted together by God in their mother's womb? All of them. All of them are put together by God in a unique way in their mother's womb. Psalm 139. None of them are born saved. What does that mean? That means saved or lost, you are uniquely made in the image of God. And he has uniquely crafted you. He has designed you. He has put you together in your mother's womb with the aptitudes and abilities and gifts that you possess. The skills, the things that you do well. The things you love to do, your interests and appetites. I'm not talking about all the stuff that gets clouded and covered by sin. Sometimes we, we, we sell ourselves short in the wrong ways. Are we all morally bankrupt? Yes. What does our, our morality add up to? Uh, zero or worse, because Isaiah says it's like filthy rags, and the stench of that is pretty interesting. Uh, so we're, we may be in the negative on righteousness, okay? But on the image of God in us, we are positives, because God put it there. And he put it in the life of every person. It's not just believers who are made in the image of God, every human being. That's why human life is so valuable. That's why it's so precious. We're going to live forever, one place or another. And we all bear the stamp of God's image in our lives. Throughout history, great musicians, great artists, great craftsmen, uh, great uh, inventors, great scientists, many, many, many of them are not believers. But they exhibit godlike qualities of creativity and imagination and artistry because God has put that in their hearts. So what is it in you that God loves? What part of His image do you bear? Is it a musical one? Is it a creative one? Is it a building one? Uh, you know, do you like gardening? What calls out from your heart to do? I was saying in the first service, you know, some people have hobbies like model trains. And you just like recreating small, exact replicas of the real thing. And so you get together at a model train club and you build cabooses, <laughs> you know, because there's something in you that wants to do that. And what I'm saying is, no matter what your passion, see, when I start talking about being missional, many people think, oh, I've got to be a pastor, or I've got to be a missionary, or I've got to somehow stand up and preach a sermon. No, you don't. You just have to be you. But whatever you are and whatever you do, the passion of God and this marvelous salvation should be present in your life if you're astounded by grace. If you're overwhelmed by grace. If you find grace amazing. In, in all of that expression of who you are, there should be this passionate desire, I want others to know Jesus. So that we, we don't segregate our lives. I come here to church and I have my religious experience and I go to work and then I go to my family and then I do my hobbies and then I have this and that. But here's the religious section. No, but Jesus permeates everything. Jesus permeates everything. Tammy's going to Turkey. 
She's not going there to be a missionary. You can't go there to be a missionary like quite like that in exactly those terms. She's going there to teach. And she's going to teach kids who have special needs. But she's carrying Jesus with her into an environment where he is not well known. And she will be a light bearer. And in her interest and in her passion and in a different culture and in a different setting, the light of Jesus is there to shine. And as God gives opportunities and as she prays, there's a chance of sharing Jesus with someone. Loving them to Christ. I'm not saying you have to go to Turkey. But God has put something in your heart. And he wants to accomplish certain things in and through the loves of your life. Because the overriding one must be the passion of this grace that God has given us. I also want to mention to us for a moment about church. Sometimes, you know, we're not very thoughtful about how we do church. Can I put it that way? We say we come to worship. But doing church and worshiping are not the same thing. Many people do church and never worship. It is also possible to worship and not do church. For example, Ruth Sween. I'm not recommending you go play golf every Sunday morning. But if you cannot come to church, it does not prevent you from being a worshiper. Thank God. So doing church and worshiping are not necessarily the same thing. But when we are worshiping as we are doing church, and when I say doing church, I'm referring to the form. When we are worshiping, there's a certain attitude about us that says, I am not here just for me. Because if worship is anything, it's first of all theocentric. It's lifted to God. It's focused on Him. And when we're focused on Him, we cannot be focused on ourselves. And when we're focused on Him, there has to develop within our hearts an attitude of servanthood. And friends, if we have caught the grace thing, and we're a community coming together to share the grace and the love of Jesus Christ, we must be servants. We must have a missional heart. We must have a desire to include others, to fold them into this family. We cannot have a mindset that says, I'm here just to get my needs met. I want to sing the songs I like. I, I want to uh, hear the sermon I want to hear. I want to do church the way I want to do church. I want to feel good when I go out of here. I, I, want to, I want to have what I want that makes me feel good. That's why I come to church. I'm sorry for you if you do that. That's not why you should come to church. <laughs> You're coming to the family. To a family gathering of worship to serve each other. To love each other. To show each other the love of God and to show others outside the love of God. Apostle Paul said people ought to look in the church and say, wow, I want to be a part of that group. Look how they love each other. Look how they care for each other. And the minute they get near, look how they fold me in. And that means that when we come, we have got to have an attitude that says, I want to be a servant. And, and I want to do things in such a way that it does not get in the way of what God is trying to accomplish. And that gets down to all kinds of nitty-gritty areas, you know? We've been talking about our need for helpers in, in nursery and children's work. You may not think that's fun. You may not want to do that. You may feel like you do that all week, and you don't need to do that on Sunday. But do you care about people in the community who have small children that might come to visit and need quality, safe care for their children? Are they important to you? 
It's not about you. You know, being on time, doing things with excellence, greeting people with, with warmth and, and genuineness, uh, standing that we, you know, we realize we still need more people in the foyer. Why? Because it's hard to greet and embrace people, and I don't mean that literally, you can scare people to death if you do that, but I'm talking about spiritually. It's hard to be warm and embracing of people who come in and give them bulletins and make sure everyone gets a bulletin and finds a seat at the same time. You know, we've been asking God to raise up people that would just be greeters, that would just look for people who park in those visitor slots and just welcome them. Make them feel at home. Love them into the family. Take down the barriers. I didn't pick on Mary Jo in the first service because I knew I would embarrass her, but she's not here. So I, I can, I, I'm just so appreciative of, of the ministry that she has of preparing the, the snacks and the food and the fruits and donuts and whatever between the services and making sure that there's something... Uh, tasty, something healthy, and something enjoyable for people to share together between the services. What a ministry that says, we want to encourage you to fellowship. Have a donut and a cup of coffee, or have a bunch of grapes and a glass of orange juice, and sit down and visit. She makes that possible. And it's a ministry of love, and she does it well. You know, we have just canceled our cleaning contract and we're bringing that back in-house because a couple in our church has agreed to take responsibility and lead teams of cleaning the building and caring for it. It's going to save us over 300 almost $350 a month. But it's also a way of saying we love the church and we love the community and we want... Uh, to be a place where those resources can be spent in other ways and this building still receptive to people and clean and prepared for them on Sunday or Wednesday or whenever it is. Why am I talking about this? Because, friends, when we have been overwhelmed by grace, it should flow out of us in the ways that we have, first of all, natural aptitudes, and also Holy Spirit giftedness that he adds to us when we're born again, that combined with supernatural enabling, he takes who we are and turns us into light bearers who are motivated by love to share the incredible message that God has made provision for you to be forgiven and cleansed and made right with him. We have to be a people who are missional. Now how do you become that kind of a person? Do you tape a sign on your mirror in the bathroom that says, be mission-minded today. Think about someone you can lead to Christ. You know? Or do you enroll in a program? Can I tell you how to become missional? Don't tape anything to your mirror. Don't, uh, don't join a program for witnessing. Spend time with God. Get close to Jesus. When you get close to the heart of God, and you're caught up with Him, His life will begin to flow through you. We become missional people when we become close to God himself. He is the great missionary. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's the heart of God. Get next to that heart. And his heart will flow through you. It's not something that we can program into our lives. But I want to raise your awareness of it this morning so you know what to be praying about. Do you have joy over your salvation? 
If there's no joy, go back to your first love. Go back next to Jesus. Get close to him again. You've lost something. Do you not care whether people die and go to hell? You need to get close to God. He cares. He really cares. Are you, maybe just due to the pressures of life and the circumstances, are you focused on yourself? Friends, get next to Jesus. Get out of yourself. Get close to the heart of God. It's not about you. You're already secure. You're on your way. You have a home-free pass. You are going to spend eternity in the presence of God. Get close to Him that you might be a light-bearer and share His message. So that wherever you are, you're first of all a naturalist. You're first of all passionate about grace. And then God will give the opportunities to capture those moments and make them last for eternity as you become his ambassador. Father, I ask this morning that you overwhelm us with grace, that you amaze us with your love, that you astound us with our standing, that we are pure and clean and holy in your presence because of Jesus. And that this truth so dramatically change our hearts that it drives us in every dimension to share it every way we can through all the mediums that you have given us that we might be light bearers of the glorious message of grace. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.